All right, good morning and Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us today. I'm very thankful that you are here. I hope that you will now take out your Bibles, for that is why we are here, and that you will turn back in them to John chapter 14. John 14, this morning we will be considering verses 12 through 17. Christmas is supposedly about Jesus. Well, this text is about Jesus, so we have a perfect Christmas text before us this morning. And even more appropriately, it is in these verses that we find one of the most important verbs in John's gospel, and that is the verb to give. I talked about this briefly at the choir cantata. John loves this word give, and John uses it 76 times in his short book, far more than any other author. Giving is important to John. Giving is important for you. God gives. Big, simple, important idea this morning. And as it is Christmas Day, supposedly the season of giving, maybe many of you have already given gifts to others this morning. VJ has given to all of us the gift of breakfast and delicious food. I have loaded up in my backpack Next door, a couple of gifts ready to give to the girls, Lord willing, as soon as I land in North Carolina tonight. But as we all have giving on the mind, what a perfect opportunity for us to consider the greatest gift that God gives to us. And I want to consider that from a bit of a different perspective today. But first, I want you to think, I want you to consider, what is the greatest and most generous gift you have ever received. And don't get all spiritual on me right now. Don't tell me like your life or salvation or love. That's not what I'm talking about right now. We know that's the correct answer. I'm talking like earthy, physical, material things. What's the best gift you've ever been given? Think about that. Then I want you to think about your response to such a gift. And then I want you to think about that in comparison to your response to the many bad gifts that you have been given over the course of your life. Uh, my grandmother's brother, my great uncle Dink, Uncle Dink, I don't know why that was his name, he was Uncle Dink, he owned a sock factory, Burke Hosiery Mills. So we literally got socks every year for Christmas. I know it's a joke, it's a cliche, we actually got socks. And not even something cool like Nike socks or colorful, fun socks, but just like plain old white hickory Socks, like old man socks, New Balances, shorts, and they pull them all the way up to their knees. Like those are the socks that we got every Christmas. Thrilling, right? We also had found great humor. We had another uncle who for many years only gave us a Chick-fil-A calendar every single year. Do you remember those? Do those exist up here? Each month had a different picture of a cow and a different coupon, and our town didn't even have a Chick-fil-A at the time. So it was literally just pictures of cows, year after year after year. But we were always polite. We always said thank you. I guess it is the thoughts that count. Uh, some socks and some pictures of cows is better than nothing. And again, we received plenty of good gifts as well. My parents were excellent gift givers, so nothing to complain about. But compare that. Compare the white socks. Compare the cow calendars. Compare that to this year. The nicest gift that I have ever been given. I received a phone call earlier in this year from a concerned couple about all of our 12-hour drives back and forth to North Carolina in our beat-up old van with those five precious girls. And the gift, well, it was a, a new van. 
a van that would not imminently strand us on the side of the highway, a new van with all sorts of safety features that would better provide for and protect those precious little girls. I thought that I was a great driver until we got this van that does a lot of the things for you, and it's constantly telling me that I'm not a good driver. It's like, oh, nope, you're drifting again. Like, <laughs> oh, no. But my response to this offer and to this gift, that was stunned silence. No idea how to response. To respond. My wife's response to this gift, obviously, tears, just tears. It was the, the thoughtfulness of the gift, the practical provision of the gift, the love and extreme generosity of giving such a gift. That's what stunned us, humbled us, and made us forever grateful. The girls, by the way, since I'm never going to have a son, they named the van Calvin. That's the name that I wanted for my son. So they, they named the van Calvin since the van was such a demonstration of undeserved, unearned grace. It is the nature of the gift that determines our response to that gift. Do we understand and appreciate the infinitely great and more costly and more practical provision that is God's gift to us? And how are we and how should we respond to such a gift? Well, I want to jump right into our text, keeping gift and giving in mind. I hope to encourage you this Christmas morning by drawing your attention to what God, the giver of all good things, what it is that he gives to us here in this text, and what Christ says will be our response. But we're going to do that in reverse order, so I actually only have two points for you today. Merry Christmas. Uh, I had three, but I love you, so I pulled one of them out, and we're saving it for next time. Hopefully, two points of encouragement and comfort. Remember, our context is trouble. Jesus has said, let not your hearts be troubled. Is your heart troubled this morning? This is a wonderful text for you. All right, how could our hearts not be troubled? What has God done? What does God give? And how can and should you respond to this God who gives? Point number one. I want us to see that we are to communicate the good news of the giver of the gift. I'm going to have to justify and explain that point. We'll do that. Point number two, here's the main thing. Here's what we'll close with. Uh, we are called to commune with the good giver through this gift, whatever this gift is. Let me read the text, and then hopefully I'll be able to explain those points. John 14, starting in verse 12. We're just going to jump right in. Read through verse 17. This is the most important part. This is the most important part of your day, for this is God speaking to you. This is God speaking to me. So pay attention. This is God's word. John 14, 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. If you would, pause, uh, bow with me. Let's, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we are introduced here in our text uh, to the Helper, to the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of Christ. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Father, we want to believe more and more 
in the Holy Spirit. We want to understand your Holy Spirit. Father, we believe that your Holy Spirit works to make us like Jesus through the reading and the preaching and the praying of your word. And so we ask that you would do that now. I ask that you would work in this time the thing that I cannot work or accomplish in this time, uh, that only you by your spirit can do as you show us Christ through this living and active word. Father, I pray that you would comfort us with the great promise that we have of your presence with us always through your spirit who dwells within us. I pray for the troubled hearts in this room. Uh, sometimes that trouble feels multiplied on uh, Christmas and in the holidays. Father, point us to Jesus Christ. Point us to you as the great giver of all good things. Point us to you as the one who is eternally and always and intimately present with us, your people. And help us to understand and rest and love you. Father, there are great things that we want accomplished in this time. I cannot do it. We cannot do it. Please help us, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, point number one is communicate the good news of the giver of the gift. It may have gotten a little too cute here with these points. That's fine. We'll, we'll see if it can pay off. But it is evident that looking at the two points that communicate and commune share a common root. They both come from the same Latin word, uh, communico, which is a giving word. It means to impart or to share or to give. And so what do verses 12 through 14 have to do with communicating and how? How can the call and command to communicate the good news, to speak, to witness, to evangelize? One of the things that we least want to do. I have a flight coming up. I'm already thinking about it. I got on my last flight to get here on Tuesday. Empty seat beside me. Oh, right, praise God. I'm off the hook. Right, no, no pressure. I right, said, so what's going to happen this afternoon? Is the person going to be there? And how's the conversation going to go? So I pray for, pray for my stubborn, selfish heart. Like this, how is this encouragement and comfort? This call to communicate that which is the best thing and yet this thing that we so struggle to do. I right, don't forget our context. Christ is leaving. The disciples are panicking. And of course they are. We saw last week that the disciples do not yet fully understand who Christ is and what he is about to do. All they really know right now is that this one whom they love, this one whom they have given their entire lives to follow, is now telling them, that he is leaving them. Christmas is the season of giving. But as, as we've said a couple of times already, for, for many, it feels more like the season of, of losing, the season of loneliness. Everyone experiences loneliness, though nobody talks about it. And, and sure, we experience it to different degrees, some more than others for various reasons. That's something that I hope that we can continue to address and improve upon in the new year, as we seek to better obey Christ's command to love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now, surely that involves presence in one another's lives, all right? pursuing one another intentionally, seeking to be a family to one another. And I know that I am the chief of sinners. I have much to improve upon in this area. But let's be praying that we can improve on that together in the new year. And then be intentional in seeking to make connection with and to communicate with those around you. But Christ has said to the disciples, love one another as I have loved you. And we know that that's primarily a reference to his sacrificial death 
in their place for their sins. He loved them by laying down his life for them. But it also included his intimate and constant presence with them over these last three years. And now he is, he's leaving them. How, how can leaving be loving? And what does Christ's leaving have to do with God's giving? And remember the disciples' confusion. Thomas says in verse 5, how can we know the way? Jesus says in verse 6, I am the way. Philip says in verse 8, show us the Father. Jesus says in verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus has been emphasizing the fact that he is the only way to the Father because he is the only one who has come from the Father. And he's the only way to see and know the Father because he is the only one who has seen and known the Father. His role is revealer. He is Christ, the communicator. He is saying, see me, see the Father, for I and the Father are one. See him in and through me. Believe me, trust me, and your hearts will not be troubled. And that is quite a promise. Trouble's solution is trust. But then there was this strange verse last week that I did this strange thing with. Let's, let's look at it again to get us into our text. Look again at verse 10. John 14, 10. Jesus says there, The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And I argued that in the context, I think Jesus' words there are the works of the Father that he is talking about in that second phrase. Jesus is not saying here, I'm doing this one thing with these words, and the Father is over here doing this other thing with these works, but that here, the very words of Christ are the works of the Father. And I argued in part that verse 12 is why that has to be the case. So look at verse 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, that means this is important, pay attention, listen to this. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. What in the world does that mean? A lot of people have a hard time with that verse. And I think that verses 12 through 14 have to be up there with some of the most abused and misused verses in scripture. Well, hey, just ask in Jesus' name and God will give you whatever you want. Well, hey, you, you too can work miracles if you just believe. Bill Johnson, uh, Bethel Church, writes, Jesus' statement is not hard to understand. Greater means greater. And the works he refers to are signs and wonders. It will not be a disservice to him to have a generation of us obey him and go beyond his own high watermark. Jesus showed us what one man could do who has the spirit without measure. What could millions do? Jesus did miracles as a man. I am responsible to pursue his lifestyle of miracles. Are you responsible to pursue a lifestyle of working miracles? Are we just like all up in here quenching the Holy Spirit at Woodside? Jesus says, whoever believes, do we just not have enough faith to work wonders? Now listen, I have no doubt of my need for a greater, more robust faith. But I also have no doubt that I am not meant to be working wonders. So what then does this verse mean? It, it has to mean something. One approach that many I respect have chosen to take is to limit 
the audience to whom Jesus is speaking here. They would read this verse as Jesus saying, truly, truly, I say to you, disciples, and nobody else. So they would say, uh, all right, Jesus' words here only apply to the apostles, and then we'll see them go on and do some of these miraculous works in the book of Acts. But again, even if that's the case, it still seems difficult to argue how the wonder works of the apostles in Acts were greater than Christ's. Remember, he has just turned water to wine. He has multiplied fish and loaves. He has walked on water. He has raised Lazarus from four days dead to life. As far as we know, not one of the apostles did all of these or greater works than these. There were some miraculous healings. They even raised some from the dead. The namesake of our very own Tabitha was one of them, as well as Eutychus, right? It's one of the best sermons or the best stories in the Acts, right? The ser- Paul preaches long-winded sermons, so, and Eutychus dies, right? So no one has died on my watch, at least. None of you have fallen out of a window, right? But then Paul raises Eutychus back to life, and then it says he, keeps, he goes on preaching, right? He keeps, he keeps going long into the night. I love it. But none of them did the miracles and all the miracles that Christ did. None of them did greater miracles than Christ did in that sense. And plus, it seems back in our text in verse 12, it seems hard to limit the whoever believes in me just to the apostles. Like John 3.16, there is no whoever in the Greek. Whenever I'm talking about John 16, somebody will say, oh, look, it says whoever believes. Well, there is no whoever in the Greek. It just says the one believing in me. And in our text, it says the one believing in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these. That seems to expand beyond just the apostles. But as far as we know in history, no one has. Please, if you know someone who has made water into wine and then maybe walked on that water and then multiplied some bread and then raised the dead, please tell me, and I would love to know. But there's none that I am aware of. So just a common sense looking back over the early church and church history makes it pretty clear that Jesus could not have meant that everyone who believed in him would do all of these miraculous works that he did and greater miraculous works than he did. No one did greater miraculous works than Jesus the Christ. But we don't have to just argue this from experience or history. And I think the text itself makes this clear. We saw last week how John uses the word works to mean a variety of things. Remember, he only records seven miraculous works of Jesus in the whole book. And he records many words of Jesus. And it is always the words that get the priority. And even John's use of the word works at times makes this clear. Back in John 6, verse 28, the crowd asks Christ, What must we do to be doing the works of God? They're not asking, how can we do some of these cool, miraculous things that you're doing? And Jesus thus answers them. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so you see here how in John 6, 28, Jesus connects work and believe in that text. Now look back at our text. Look closely back at verse 12 of chapter 14. Well, no, look at verse 11 first, actually. Look how there, also, Jesus connects, believe in me, and then he says, believe on account of the works. Now, verse 12, he says something similar, whoever believes in me works. 
So whatever you want the works to be there, what is clear is that Jesus is saying that the works function in some way to lead people to believe in him. And so I believe that Jesus is saying, verse 11, let my words slash works lead you to believe in me. Verse 12, whoever believes in me will also do this same work of leading others to believe in me. For that is always the purpose of the miraculous works. Remember, they're never called miracles. In John, they're called signs. And signs signify. Signs are not the point. Signs point to the point. The signs always serve to come alongside and point to the words and to point to the speaker of these wonderful words. We have been seeking lately to give more intentional attention to our attention. What are you paying attention to? What are you paying close attention to? What occupies your mind and gets your time and your energy? I've been seeking to do this in light of Hebrews 2.11 in large part. Flip there, if you would like, page 1001. This is an important text for understanding works and miracles and the word and the connection and how all this goes together. Hebrews 2.1, page 1001. I know no one thinks this. I still think this is Paul. I, I lean towards this being Paul, but again, I'm not sure. Hebrews 2.1, someone writes, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Last week, we saw Jesus say to the disciples, If you had known me. Yeah, well, of course, they, they knew him. They gave their lives to follow him. They did so for three years. They have believed and known him. But there was another sense in which they did not yet truly and fully know him. Likewise, here in Hebrews 2, there is apparently a hearing that is not a true hearing. Some of that hearing is going on in this room right now. I've been there. Some of that hearing is a just hear, is the, the, one ear in one ear, out the other. That kind. There's a not paying closer attention, not to me and my words. I don't care. I don't matter. But God's word. And so Hebrews 2.1 tells us that there's a hearing that is not a true hearing that could result in a drifting away from what is heard. What's the difference? Paying much closer attention to what was heard. And I think some of the simplest and yet most helpful advice when it comes to the Christian life, particularly our devotional life, we're all looking ahead, what are we going to do next year, what's the plan, how are we going to fix everything and change everything? Well, again, one of the best pieces of advice for your devotional life is simply to slow down. Just slow down. And that, that is all, in a sense, meditation is. Read slowly. And then linger on it. And then in it. And then come back to it uh, throughout your day. Love is not irritable. How often am I coming back to that uh, throughout my day? It is not irritable. I'm seeking to pay much closer attention to what I have heard. So read, think, pray, and talk about whatever it is that you are engaging with. Slow down. Pay closer attention. Read less if you have to, but read it more deeply and give more attention to it. We are seeking communion with the one who makes known the paths of life and in whose presence is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Give that. Give him a little more time and attention. But that's actually not what brings me to Hebrews 2. Sorry. Look at verse 3. Hebrews 2 verse 3. In verse 3, we are warned about neglecting such a great salvation. 
says a salvation that was declared to us first by the Lord. And it was then attested to us by those who heard. So that's Jesus. That's him preaching and proclaiming the gospel, which is himself. Christ is the gospel. He's preaching it first to his disciples, who are then to preach it and proclaim it and write it down for the rest of us. But that's not all. Look at verse 4. Here's why we're here. Declared by Christ, attested by the apostles, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. There it is, right there. That is the work of the miracles. The works are witness. The works bear witness. The point of the miracles was never just to impress people. Look what I can do. The point of the miracles was never even just to help people. It wasn't. They did, of course, do that. Praise God. But that was not their main purpose. Miracles attest authority. They verify. They certify. Listen to this person. This person speaks for God. Pay much closer attention to the words of this person. And so the works come alongside the words and verify that the speaker speaks for God himself. And now that those authorized speakers have spoken, now that we have God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative, clear, necessary, sufficient word, the Bible, we no longer need those certifying works because we've got the word. Peter says, we heard the voice of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, we have something more certain, more sure. We have the prophetic word. And God's word has always been the point. God's word has always been the power. From the very beginning, God speaks and reality flies into existence. Jesus didn't come to heal. He came to reveal. Or he didn't come to heal bodies. He came to heal souls. That was the work that God gave him to accomplish. Christ's chief work was the revelation of the glory of the Father in the salvation of sinners through his own life, death, and resurrection. And then having accomplished that work, that work that was required to save his people, he then tasked his disciples with the work of preaching the word through which he would call his people to him. And consider the book of Acts. Sure, there are a few miracles performed by the apostles. Oh, but consider how many conversions there are. Thousands upon thousands of them. Consider the focus of the book of Acts. Salvation through the proclamation of the word of the resurrected and living and powerful Christ. And how does the whole book begin? Acts 1.8. Jesus' final words before he ascends. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's where we're going. We're getting there. Power? All right, sounds cool. What, what can I do with that? Can I work some wonders? No, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He said, here's the power. Now speak. Witness. Communicate the good news of the work that the Christ who was born on this day that we celebrate, communicate the work that he has accomplished. And so back to John 14, 12, that's the good works that whoever believes will do. And even greater works. 
How is that possible? Again, notice the end of the verse. This is key. This is what... This is the context that, that shapes and changes it all. Look, he says this is going to happen. You're going to do this. You're going to do these greater works. Don't miss the end. Because I am going to the Father. Which is again what? His death. That's how he's going to the Father. His death, resurrection, and ascension, of course. But his death is how he gets there. Our greater works are dependent first upon his death. Our works are only greater in, in scope as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, but also the fact that our works are the first ones in, that are coming now after the work has been accomplished. His death, which is the salvation of sinners. And it is after his death and resurrection and ascension beginning in Acts that the gospel just explodes to the utter ends of the earth and eventually millions upon millions of sinners are saved through the greater work, the preaching of the living and active word that is able to save souls. And church, listen, there is no greater, there is no more miraculous work than a dead heart made alive. The greater works is the multiplication of the work that is the most miraculous. And it's not even close. It's regeneration. There is no greater work possible than the salvation of a soul. There is nothing more miraculous than the conversion of a sinful heart. Nothing compares with the miraculous movement from death to life, from wrath to reconciliation, from sinful to holy, from enemies of God to children of God, all of it by the grace of God, through the almighty word of God, wielded by the people of God in the power of the spirit of God. Nothing compares. And it's not even close. If, if we understood and appreciated sin and our own sinfulness, we would be far less obsessed and concerned with the supposedly miraculous. For we would know that we have already experienced that which is far more miraculous. As we know ourselves, we know our hearts, we know our sin. If you could know the depths of my sinful heart and yet to be counted righteous, to be forgiven, to be able to stand confidently in his presence, to know that my eternity is secure. If you were to know that heart that you have and the sin that still lingers, and yet also to know the liberating, saving, satisfying love and grace of God changes everything. The church has got to stop obsessively seeking the miraculous and sinfully overlooking the truly miraculous. We are simply not amazed enough with the salvation of sinners and with the salvation of our own dreadfully dead and sinful hearts. For that is what God is all about. And that is what he has called us, his church, to be all about. Ephesians 3.20 is, is the beginning of one of my favorite uh, benedictions. Kind of jealous of the ladies having gone through Ephesians. I think maybe it'll we'll go back to Genesis. And it might be time to come to Ephesians in four years, whatever. <laughs> Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, or according to the power at work within us. To him be glory. Can you see that? There, there, there is a power that is at work within us. To work miracles? No, it is to work life. Ephesians chapter 1. If you turn there, go back to Ephesians chapter 1. 
Working on memorizing this chapter, it's so amazing. Paul is praying in verse 17, Ephesians 1, 17, that the Father may give, here's where we're going, that the Father may give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and of knowledge of him. Verse 18, that you may know. Saint, do you know this? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. How good is this hope? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now listen to 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? And what does that great power, that great working do and how he can do all these great working and miraculous things? No. Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. There's the power. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that, hey, why is God doing all this for you? So that in the coming ages he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, Ephesians 1 and 2, Paul uses that immeasurable word twice. God has a measurable greatness of power towards you so that he can show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards you. Come on, right? That, what a promise. He uses that power, infinite eternal power to give you life and joy and peace. Not to give you power to do some magic tricks, but to give you blessed and everlasting life. And life is everything. That's what the power is for. That's our greater work. We get to play a role in the proclamation of the life-giving gospel of the life-saving Jesus. And that means that church, we must be about communicating about giving this life-giving good news to the lost and dying world. I have two conversations that I have to have as I head south that are weighing on me and that I know that, that have to come. I have to do this out of love. This is our one task. This is our greater work. And what if, what if, church, what if God actually started saving sinners through our bold communicating of this word to those around us? What if we actually believed that this individual was on their way to an eternity of unspeakable suffering, just and deserved suffering for sin, but we simply, by the grace of God, communicated faithfully to them that there is a Savior of sinners, Jesus Christ, and that God worked through that to give them life, and they were spared from an eternity of hell and given an eternity of heaven. Wouldn't that just be the most wonderful and miraculous and the greater work possible. Wouldn't that be worth a little social awkwardness? Wouldn't it be worth being looked at as a little bit weird and maybe as a, uh, I'm, a I'm the family fundamentalist in our family. I'm increasingly like the fundamentalist. Again, I, I don't care. I don't care. What if all this is true? Maybe we should be a little more concerned about the whole of eternity in the year of 2023. Speak. I mean, who can you speak to this Many of you are heading straight from here to families. Who could you speak to this day, this week? Who needs to hear and you've just been dragging your feet? Again, I, I'm, I know, I do it 
too. But I've got to get over it. I've got to start communicating to others as if I actually believed what I'm communicating to you right now. And I've got to intentionally and patiently ask God to help me. And that's, that's all verses 13 and 14 are about. I'm going to have to just kind of fly over those. And read verses 13 and 14 in context. You can't pull them out of context. These are not blanket promises that God will give you whatever you ask uh, to serve your sinful fancy and seek your own selfish glory. This is a promise that if we ask in Christ's name, and whatever it is that we're asking, we're asking it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And contextually, this is specifically a reference to the greater works and our call and commission to do the works of Christ and to communicate the word of Christ to the world, to the glory of God. And so he says, ask. Are you intentionally and persistently and regularly asking for the salvation of that loved one that you are so concerned about? Pray and ask him to work. Believe, trust that Christ will work through his word. And let's commit ourselves to doing that this year. Point number two. Let's move. Aren't you glad there's not a third point? Point number two. Commune with the good giver through the gift. But first look at verse 15. Back to John 14, verse 15. Jesus says there, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, skip it. Just ignore it. That's, That's the point that I pulled. But worry not. Look down at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is. Who loves me? Verse 23, keep my word. Verse 24, keep my word. What a a perfect word for my first sermon of the new year when we get back. Four times Jesus connects, loves, and keeps. And what's interesting is that we have heard much about Jesus' love for his own. He has commanded their love for one another. This is actually the first time in the gospel that he speaks of their and of our love for him. And the first time that he speaks it, he keeps connecting it to keeping four times. So keep that in mind, and we're going to start the new year with that. Now look at verse 16. Here is the good stuff. Here is the gift. Here's the foundation of all that we just talked about. God gives. Here is what he gives. And this is important because this is the one that we miss. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth. Stop. The spirit. Here, the spirit of truth, down in verse 26, the Holy Spirit. And here, as far as we know, is Christ's first explicit teaching on the spirit to his disciples. He has mentioned him here and there to Nicodemus in 3.6. and 8.39, John tells us that Jesus was speaking about the spirit when he talks about the living waters flowing out of our hearts, but they didn't understand that yet at the time. It is not until here, chapter 14, the night he is going to be betrayed, uh, the morning, the night before he's going to be killed. It's not until here that Christ begins to teach clearly on the Spirit. And it is here that he first mentions the Spirit as God's special gift to us. And so why here? Why now? 14.1 again. Let not your hearts be Troubled. Jesus is departing. They are despairing. Jesus is comforting. And here's how. Here's the comfort. Here's the comforter. That's actually the translation that King James goes with. God will give to you another comforter. 
If you have the ESV there, look at the little footnote 6 by helper if you're in the pew Bible. The ESV translated this word helper, but notes that the word could also be translated advocate or counselor. Those four different words, and there are other possibilities, what that tells us is that there is simply no one word in English that can convey to us all the meaning that is wrapped up in this title of this person. So some prefer just to transliterate the Greek. The Father will give to you another paraclete is the word in the Greek. Para means alongside and kletos means called. The church is the ekklesia, the the called out ones. And so a paraclete is simply someone who is called alongside. Someone who comes alongside for the purpose of assisting, encouraging, counseling, helping. And so while no word is perfect in the English, helper is probably the best option as in our context The paraclete is the one who offers help or assistance in a situation of need. And are we not perpetually in a situation of need? Are not the disciples here in a situation of great need? And so the gift, the solution to their troubled heart is this paraclete. But first, question, important question first. Who is the paraclete? Who's the paraclete? Who is the paraclete? Anybody? Thank you. Yeah, it's not a very tricky question. It's Christ, of course. Christ is the paraclete. 1 John 2, 1. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate or a helper or a paraclete. It's the exact same word in the Greek. If anyone does sin, we have a paraclete with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Christ is the paraclete. The Holy Spirit is another paraclete. And this is wonderful and comforting and helpful. If we can begin to learn this and love this and live in light of this. They are troubled that Christ who is their life is departing. The Christ who is their life before departing them says, Hey, don't be troubled. It seems crazy. And not only that, down in verse 28, he will say that if they really understood, they would rejoice. That he was going. Later in 16 verse 7. He says it is to their advantage. That he go away. Why? Well we know that it's because his departure is his death. And his death is their life. His death is your life. But there's even more. It's actually even better. Peek down to verse 18. You're cheating a little bit. Look down at verse 18. It's all connected. This is such a hard text to break up. So it's forgive me. But look at verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That is not about the second coming. He will come again, of course. But he is not comforting them in that moment by saying, hey, don't worry, 2,000 years after you're dead, I'll come back. Don't worry about that. No. Verse 19. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. So much life. Again, this is what it's about. Love this life. Verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. What does that mean? What is he saying? Back up to the end of our passage. Verse 17. You know him, the Spirit, for he dwells with you 
and will be in you. And so catch what Jesus is doing here. I'm just trying to make it clear. This is good news. Jesus is introducing the spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, who in a number of places in the New Testament is also called the spirit of Christ. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Spirit, spirit of God, spirit of Christ, all this same Holy Spirit. And so, in a sense, in our text, Jesus is saying, I am departing, let not your hearts be troubled, because I'm also not departing at all. Yes, Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is physically about to depart them in his death, resurrection, then ascension. But the Spirit, this other one, like me, from me, of me, sent by the Father, the gift of Of the Father, like me, he will be with you forever. And he will be in you. And so Jesus' departure actually in no way means Jesus' absence. For Christ will very much continue to be very much present with the disciples. And with all of us through the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. With and in us in an entirely new, more intimate, more spiritual, better way. This is the gift. The Holy Spirit is the gift. Which means that our tendency today to not really get to the Holy Spirit is a problem. For he is our comforter. He is our help. He is God with us with us. He is God's presence. And so we need to work really hard in these three chapters of John, 14, 15, and 16, over the course of a number of sermons, we need to really work to seek to better understand the person and work of the Holy Spirit, to to better know him and know what it means that he dwells with us and in us and how to live in light of that. And so pray for me as, as, we, as I'm thinking and reading and, and wanting to understand this better myself and communicate this better. I was reading this week the introduction to one of John Owens's work, many works, on the Holy Spirit. They're, they're publishing a new set of all of John Owen's works, and the first one's out, and it's like 400 pages, 500 pages. There's 40 of them. I don't know how, I don't know how I'm going to afford it, but it's going to have to happen. We're going to have to figure it out. I'm going to take out a loan. But in the opening, one of the most brilliant and godly men who has ever lived, in his opening to one of his most important works on the Spirit, writes, he says that the work is too great and difficult for him to undertake, and it's beyond his ability to manage. So there is little hope for me. But Owen hopefully points out something that we generally miss. He says that the glory of God and the good of the souls of his people are wrapped up so intimately in the truths of this gospel, this this great saving uh, work of of God coming and rescuing sinners to the praise of his glory and grace. And then John unpacks, uh, uh, Owen unpacks the fact that he has appointed two great means of that work. We only think of one. And Owen is saying there are two great means to accomplish this great work, two great gifts, the one was the giving of God's Son for us. The other was the giving of God's Spirit to us. And you cannot have one without the other. Both of them are central to this whole glorious project of salvation to the glory of God. And it is this second, this gift of the Spirit that we are seeking to understand, for it is this that is the primary way that Christ in our text is seeking to comfort his troubled people. 
Their concern was absence. Our struggle is often absence. It's often loneliness. But again, look at what Christ is promising here. Look at what we have here. The promise of his presence with us forever. And so again, in Christ, while we all do, we struggle with loneliness at times and we need to better care for one another. In Christ, I don't remember who said it from this pulpit recently, someone, but like, in Christ, that feeling of loneliness, it's a lie. It's, it's all entirely a lie because of this. Again, that's not minimizing those things, but it's saying, but, but look at what's promised for you here. A helper who is God himself to come alongside you. And not just to come alongside you, but to be inside you. And what if we were to realize that? What if we were to better know him and trust him and enjoy him? Listen, that's what we're after. That's what this whole thing is about. There's, there's so much that we need uh, to talk about the Holy Spirit, and we will. He's a person, not just a power. He is the person with the power, yes, but we've got to start thinking of him more intentionally, truly as the third person, the same in substance, equal in power and glory with the Father. And the Son. He is the Spirit of truth. We're going to hit that hard coming up in verse 26. There is a close, unbreakable connection between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. The Spirit is the Spirit of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the Scriptures of the Spirit. To be spiritual is to be biblical. It is to operate in the realm of the Spirit who operates only in and through the Word. Like last week, the Son is the way to the Father. The Word is the way to the Son. The Spirit is the way through the Word to the Son. I already touched on this a little bit, but listen, you, you must read. You, you must read God's Word. It's, it's the beginning of a new year. I don't care if you read through the whole Bible in a year. I don't care. But I do very much care that you read the Bible slowly again. Slow down and think about it and pray about it. And talk about it. You cannot do the Christian life without the word of God. You want your heart to not be troubled in 2023? Come eat, drink, feast, rest, learn and love and live in the son that is revealed in this word by the spirit. I don't care if you keep starting and stopping. I don't care if you've never got past numbers. Um, Get up and start again. Get help. Read it with someone else. There is nothing better that you could give yourself to in the coming year than to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that only happens through the word of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so please, take up and read. If you, don't, like, if you have no idea how to start, man, come talk to Pastor Mike. Come talk to me. Come talk to many people around you. And we would love to help you. If you're discouraged, we'd love to come alongside you and read with you. Uh, just come, get, get help. The gift in our text is the Spirit. The Spirit gives the word and grants the word great power. Use that word of this Spirit. But the wording of our point here, now I'll wrap up with this. The wording of our point is to commune with the good giver through the gift. Again, I'm not just telling you to read a book. Hey, you should read some books. No, again, the, per- the point and purpose of this is for this purpose of, of communing. This is what I am encouraging you to pursue as you read God's living and active word. To commune, like communicate, is to, it's to share. 
It is to know and be known. It is intimacy and enjoyment. And that's what the Christian life is meant to be about. It's not just a system of theology. It's not just a system of morality. Today's Christmas, which is supposed to be all about the birth of Jesus Christ. The transcendent has become eminent. The big has become small. The infinite has become finite. The invisible has become visible. The immaterial, material, the spiritual, physical, the timeless has entered time. The author has entered his story. God has become man. No more amazing thing has ever happened or ever will happen. But why? Why did it happen? Why did he do it? Well, to save us from our sins, of course. And we need to not give that less attention. We need to give that more attention. But to save us for what? We get the from a lot. What about the for? It's for communion with him. To restore what we destroyed in our sin. The intimate, unmediated presence of God himself with his people. That's what the whole story is about. From beginning to end, this is what God is doing. This is what covenant is all about. I will be your God and you will be my people. The whole storyline of the Bible is God restoring us to fellowship, union, communion, relationship with him. That's why Christ is God with us. That's why the Spirit is God in us. This is what the whole thing is about. And is this what you, is this what we are all about life in knowing and being known by the creator God himself. Joy in knowing and being known by the creator God himself. Peace in knowing and being known by the creator God himself. What if those things, which we are all desperate for, what if they were actually only found in him, found only through his son, found only through his word, by his spirit. And that, that's, that's what I want for 2023. That's what I want for my kids. I miss my kids. I was writing this part at like 11.15 last night. I started getting a little emotional. I'm trying not to get emotional. I miss my kids. I had to take off my little bracelets for my kids. I was like, oh, that's going to be really distracting if I'm waving around with these dad-ad bracelets and, and I love you bracelets. Again, I don't care. I, I wear bracelets. I'm a dad girl. They're all colorful and pretty. I, again, I don't care. I miss my kids. I have presents in my backpack, all ready to go. I can't wait to hug them. And Henry and I were talking at lunch Friday about parenting. I, all I want for my kids is for them to know Jesus. That's it. That's it. Parents, are we parenting our kids for eternity? I don't care about all the. I don't want my kids to be cool. I don't. I desperately don't want them to be cool. I don't want them to fall in love with the world because I'm still so trying to untangle my heart from its love for the world. I want my kids to be saved from their sins and to know the love of the Lord that is life. Yes, I want to be with him tonight. I can't wait. But I want to be with him forever, with the Lord. And that's it. That's, that's all that matters. And that's what I want for all of us. Some of you have very troubled hearts. I know. Mine is often troubled too. And we need to love one another better. And we need to be there for one another better. But I also want every one of us to grow in the belief that in Christ, whatever the troubles are, they're nothing compared to the trouble that we have been spared. That in Christ, no matter how bad the loneliness, we are never alone. That in Christ, we have 
access directly to the one who makes known to us the paths of life and in whose presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Just sit in Psalm 16 and come back to it again and again and again. Let's fight to believe that and live like we believed that. Let's pursue him and pursue communion with God himself by his spirit through his word. And let's do that together in the year that is to come. I was reading an Elizabeth Elliot book uh, this week and one of the lines is wonderful. And she said, that the, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Amen. Sometimes I think I would just have peace if we could fill this stupid room up. It's not true. It's such a lie. It's, so, it's, pri- it's pride. It's self-focus. The secret is not in different circumstances. The secret is Christ in us, and Christ is in us by the Spirit. And so whatever you're facing, look at what Christ holds out to you here. Let not your hearts be troubled. The gift is the giver. My prayer is that you would know him and love him and truly enjoy him and find great peace for your troubled heart. Let me close this time with a word of prayer. Father, help us. Father, it is in this very text that you have promised to us the helper that has already been given to us by you, sent to us by Christ. Father, help us to realize the personhood, the power, the presence, the intimacy of the Spirit who dwells with us, who dwells in us. Father, help us to not look to what it is that we can accomplish for our own glory. Help us to look to what we have in you and what you have saved us from. And Father, what you have saved us for, help us to better understand and pursue what you have saved us for. Father, I feel like I'm just beginning to understand what it means to pursue you and to enjoy you and to to commune and to rest with you. Father, I pray for every single one of us here at Woodside. I pray for my family. I pray that this would be a place where we pursue you above all else. And as we do that, and as we find uh, great joy um, in you, Father, that's what then overflows into the great love for one another. As we become more like Christ by your grace, we would better care for one another and be paracletes to one another, to come alongside and to help and to, uh, to be present with one another. Father, so often the task feels so big and, and, and too big, but Father, with you, nothing, nothing is too big, for you are God. And you are good, and you are in control, and you have already promised to us that you have been work, that you are working all things together for the good of every single one of those who are yours. So help us to believe that, Lord. Help us to love you. Help us to trust you, Father. You have been so gracious to us here at Woodside in this in this year that we are leaving. Father, we ask that you would continue to be gracious to us in the year to come. May Woodside Community Church be a place that is all about the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The gospel would go forth from this place corporately and from each and every one of us individually in great power as we seek to communicate the good news of the God with whom we get to commune himself. Father, please help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.